Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Where was Elijah and why was he there? That's actually the question that will be put to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, we're told he was at Mount Horeb. That's kind of the fill-in phrase, just so we've got a little bit of context. But what is Horeb? What is Mount Horeb? The mountain of God. Well, it's also known as Sinai. When we go much further back, we find that that's where Moses had his first encounter with God. There in the burning bush, the Lord speaking to him. That's at Horeb. But likewise, he was told when he went to get the people and to bring them out of bondage in Egypt, that the sign that the Lord had truly sent him would be, when you've brought them out, you will worship God at this mountain. So it's the place that they returned to, to worship God, very much associated with his presence in a very clear and intimate way. It's on that mountain that Moses received the laws and commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Elijah is there. For Moses, he went up to receive the commandments, 40 days and nights up the mountain. He actually did that twice because he received the tablets, he brought them down and discovered that the people had turned apostate, were worshipping the golden calf. And Moses, in a way that a lot of us might understand, was so incensed that he actually smashed the tablets and had to go back up. But another 40 days and nights, fasting, praying, the commandments given. Well, now we have Elijah. Elijah, that great prophet of the Lord, who has actually traveled 40 days and nights to get to Mount Horeb. He's going back, but it's a different stage in his life and in history. Elijah is likewise living in a time where the people are apostates. It's under the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. The queen has done everything she can to eradicate the worship of the true Lord in the kingdom. Elijah is convinced that he is the last of the prophets. He's not sure that there's anybody left to stand with him. And yet, if we go back just another chapter in the story, we know that that's where he took on all the prophets of Baal. There are at least 400 coming against him. That great contest, not on Mount Horeb, but on Mount Carmel. I'm sure we all know the story. We can go back and read it again in 1 Kings 18. It's at a time when there's judgment on the people. At the hands of Elijah, there's a drought that's been brought on the land. And it's persisted for quite some time and very severe. But now Elijah goes and confronts the prophets of Baal. It's the greatest moment of his life, you would think, because it's there that the sacrifices are set out and there's the invitation for fire from the heavens to come down. The pagans go first. The worshippers of Baal and Ashtaroth beseech their gods and nothing happens. They cut themselves. They dance about for hours and nothing happens. But when Elijah gets his turn, 
he goes to great lengths to make sure that there's no trick here. He has everything doused in water. There are trenches dug around. And it's doused again and the water fills the trenches. When the Lord shows up in this case, it's the mighty fire that comes down and burns up everything. And we think about that fire when we come to Mount Horeb. And we think about where Elijah looks for the Lord. He's seen incredible signs. I've talked often about that story because it's the strangest of ones. Elijah's right at the top of his game. All the prophets of Baal are put to the sword. It looks like things are turning. And yet, as he goes out, first to end the drought, sends his servant to look out over the water to look for the first cloud that will form, that the drought is going to end and the waters pour down. So we think about storm and we think about the winds. We think about the rains. Again, mighty signs of God's presence at work. But then comes the threat from the queen. The word that the gods might do such and such to me if by nightfall I do not make you like one of those prophets of mine. And Elijah runs. And it's a stunning part of his story because there is surely no greater, more confident prophet than Elijah. And yet he runs for his life. And a day's journey out falls down and sinks into what I would have to call a real depression. He begs for the Lord to take his life. He feels he has no purpose, no point. He's all on his own. He's the last of the prophets. And now they want to take his life. And even in that moment, the gentleness of the Lord, there's no response. Sometimes when someone's pretty depressed, you can't say a lot anyway. But he rests for a bit. An angel awakens him twice to feed him. Eat now or you won't have strength for the journey. And the journey that follows is that journey to Horeb. So we know where he is. He's at that mountain of the Lord, where the Lord has manifested his presence so powerfully before. Elijah is there because he's running away from everything. He's done all these wonderful things for the Lord, or properly the Lord has done these things through him. But now he has no energy, he has no strength. He's completely spent. And there on the mountain he waits. And just intriguing all of the things he's seen in his life, the presence of God in the fire, in the storm, in the earthquake. He's seen a lot of that, but you know that at Sinai, that's how the Lord's presence was manifest to a wayward people in the signs and the fury and the power. You think about Jesus, though. We've been hitting it recently. Him saying that this generation demands a sign. No sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah. The signs, we believe the signs, but we miss often what's going on. Elijah knows that that's not how the Lord is coming. When he comes, he comes in that still, small voice, in the quiet, in the gentleness. Always worth hearing that one. You know, Elijah is feeling completely bereft. He has no strength. He has no power to raise himself up, but the Lord meets him there, speaks to him there, speaks to him gently. He doesn't upbraid him. Although I sort of hear this little line in the background, 
I hear when he does address him a little bit of a, oh man of little faith. I'm the last of the prophets. There's no one left and now they want to take my life. Elijah, who am I? Who are you? What have we done through these ages? Did you really imagine that it was in your strength that you were doing these things? Have you forgotten who it was who was at work? You're not alone. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. They're there. They're waiting. And more than that, you're not done yet. He's coming to the end of his life, but I've got things for you to do. I'm the one who works through you. I'm the power in your life. I come to you in your weakness. You haven't got all those words there, but you can read them in. You can meditate upon it. But he sends him out and he gives him very particular tasks. Not a bad thing sometimes when you're really struggling to get any momentum to have somebody meet you where you are, but to give just the most simple, practical things. You go and anoint Elisha, who's to be your successor. You go and anoint these kings, not just in Israel, not in Judah, but in other nations round about. You're to anoint the kings. You're to do your work. And it won't be long before he's taken up in his fiery chariot. For all the prophetic power of the man, the threats took his mind off the Lord and focused them on himself and his own weaknesses, his own inadequacy. And he had to say, I can't do it, Lord. I can't manage. It's beyond me. Oh, man of little faith. Did you think it was about you? Did you think it was yours to do? Did you not know who's been at work through you? Now come and do what I give you to do. Will I not give you what you need? Well, it should sound familiar when we hit the gospel today and we think about Simon Peter and his story. Simon Peter is in no way an Elijah. Frankly, even John the Baptist isn't an Elijah, even though he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see the word, the Lord speaking wonderfully through John, but he doesn't do miracles on the scale that Elijah did. Those do come in in Jesus, though, and John is pointing the way to him. But we've got Simon Peter. If you'll indulge me a little bit, think about, well, what is Peter doing there in our story today? How did he get there? What's he doing there? There's background, too. Go back and read the rest of the chapter. They've actually just gotten word that John the Baptist has been put to death. And the response to it is Jesus taking them away to a quiet place. They're in a quiet place away from the crowds, but the crowds find them. And the story that unfolds is that feeding of the 5,000, the people without any means, and Jesus saying to his disciples, uh, okay, well, what have you got? You can feed them. Lord, we don't have anything. And of course, we know that they find the five loaves and the two fish that come to him. He takes them in his hands, does the blessing and the breaking, and more than 5,000 are filled. It's the end of that story. He's dismissing the crowds and his disciples. They're not just starting across. He's actually sent them. Um, It's a very strong word in the Greek that he's kind of compelled them to go. I don't know if they were thinking, well, how are you going to come? How are you going to follow us? You don't have a boat. What are you going to do? But they head off. 
And then he finishes the dismissal and goes to prayer, as he so often does. We've got the focus that is there. How long did it take? How long did it take to go across the water that night? We're told that they headed off as evening was coming on. We're now in the fourth watch of the night when he comes. And if you go back to the Roman watches, well, they started. Night was to start at sundown, so you're about six in the evening is the general reckoning. Six to to nine, that's the first watch. Nine to twelve, midnight, is the second watch. The third is then twelve to three. The last one, the fourth watch, is three to six. So we're actually towards the end of the night, moving towards daylight even. And Jesus heads out. They've been struggling. I don't, I don't know exactly where they were going or where they were starting, like how long a journey it was, but we're told that the wind was against them. They're struggling out there on the wind. It's in the wind. It's kind of stormy. It's dark. And suddenly there's a figure out on the water. And we get the story of their panic. Uh, who can it be? What is it? It must be some kind of a ghost. There can be nobody out here on the water at this time. And in their fear, when they cry out, Jesus responds with those words, don't be afraid, be of good cheer, take heart, it's, it is I. And I wonder, I just wonder about Peter at that time, is he convinced that he's dreaming? Because, you know, in a dream, you can do things you couldn't do otherwise. Does he figure if he steps out on the water, if Jesus calls him and he can do it, it must be a dream. A strange confidence as he does step out. Lord, if it is you, call me to come to you. Not just, you know, give us a sign, but tell me to come. And he starts. And it's one of the most stunning stories in Scripture. No, he's not an Elijah. He hasn't been doing the other great things, but he steps out at that word and Peter walks on the water. Nobody can walk on the water. There's a great mystery and miracle that Jesus is doing it, but Peter does it as well. His eyes fixed on Jesus. And I don't know how far apart they were. The indication is that he was actually getting to Jesus at the point that he became aware of the wind. And maybe this isn't a dream. And I imagine him saying something that I've said too many times. Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is beyond me. Why are you putting me here? I can't do this. I can't walk on the water. And Peter begins to sink. And he cries out in his fear, Lord, save me. And the Lord pulls him out. And that lovely little line that they get to the boat and the wind ceases. Why are we afraid? Oh, man of little faith. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he did the impossible. When he got his eyes off of him, effectively he got his eyes on himself, his own inadequacy, and he sunk. Here's the great prophet Elijah. When he got thinking about himself, he knew he was inadequate. And even the great Elijah fell into that depression. Jesus has said some things about faith. Not how much faith you have, it's if you had a mustard seed of faith, you could say to the mountain, be moved, and it would be. It's not so much how much faith you have, but where you plant it, in whom you trust. And the Lord is trustworthy. Jesus, like the Lord at Mount 
Sinai at Horeb with the prophet responds in pretty gentle fashion all in all. He doesn't upbraid Peter. He says, why did you doubt? (laughs) You know, where was your faith? He doesn't leave him floundering in the water. He doesn't say, well, it serves you right. You know, you got your eyes off of me. Well, now see what happens. The rest of you watch him. (laughs) See what would happen to you too. No, he pulls him out. He does meet him where he is and he builds him up in that. Peter is to be that leader, but you know what? We've seen it elsewhere with Peter when he gets his eyes off Jesus. When he starts trusting in himself, he gets everything wrong. He falls flat on his face. He sinks like a stone instead of walking on that water with his Lord. Instead of being that rock on which the Lord can build. Our own lives. We're not expecting, I'm sure, to do the things that Elijah did. We're not expecting to step out and walk on the water like Peter did. Although, it's amazing the things that the Lord does in and through us when we do look to him. When we fix ourselves on what he can do and less on what we can't do, where we take the loaves and the fishes and actually put them into his hands and let him do the blessing and the breaking and the distribution. When we come to the Red Sea and we don't trust just in ourselves, but we take him at his word and the waters are parted. When we come to the walls of Jericho and that which cannot be overcome yet is tumbled down at a word from him, at a word of praise, of confidence and trust in him. How many days have I, in things that I've been doing, fallen flat on my face and then realized that I didn't begin the day in prayer, I didn't look to the Lord? How many times have I tried to do great things for him and forgotten that he needs to do them in and through me and Even if I accomplish what I want, at the worst, it actually focuses people on me and not on him and maybe turns them away from him because I get in the way. The Lord's grace is sufficient, but again and again, his saints have had to learn that it's the grace that we need. It's not about us. It's about him. We have little idea what he would do by his grace if we would listen and obey. But he calls us not only to trust in a word from afar, but he draws near and invites us to himself. Lord, grant us grace to attend to thy still small voice and to follow in faithfulness even this day. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.